And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Uh, thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to uh, 6 o'clock. We do stream live as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today in the first hour from the February 4th, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series. Uh, you are going to hear readings by Ron Chase, Sarah Emtage, Alan Watt, and Gretchen Huntley. And then following that, from the February 5th Creative Writing at Queen's Reading and Conversation Series, you'll hear Leslie Bodo, uh, uh, her reading. And in the second hour from, again, that same Creative Writing event, uh, you'll hear the conversation portion uh, with Leslie. Following that, uh, from, again, the February 4th Open Mic, and Journey Continues Open Mic, uh, you'll hear readings by Karma Nichiforo and Graham and Allison Chisholm. Uh, this first, though, uh, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show, may contain strong language, but all is played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Up first, and I noticed I need to, I don't know what happened here. And let me just get back on track. I'm not quite sure. Here we go. And I think we're going to be in good shape now. <laughs> I had to just rearrange a few things here. And... Uh, Thanks for being patient. Uh, up first, and uh, we're going to start off with uh, four readings from the end. The Journey Continues, the open mic reading uh, that was held on uh, February 4th. Uh, so just, uh, what, a little over a week ago, a week and a half ago, uh, in that monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. And uh, to begin with, uh, the four poets you're going to hear that, that evening, uh, there will be three at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that at the end of the second hour. Uh, and we're going to fill in, as I mentioned, a longer event. Uh, we'll take up most of the show, but uh, first, uh, you're going to hear Ron Chase, Sarah Emtish, Alan Watt, and Gretchen Huntley. Let's go ahead and pull them up now. A bitter record. Every Sunday night, I choke on the threat, on the threat of Monday morning. Another red X on the calendar. I taste bitter life flood my mouth, but keep swallowing. I know sleep will hold my hand until the sun rises and slaps my face to remind me I have no choice. It's written in vinyl and it plays over and over and over. I'll get up and try to sing along until I can't or someone lowers my arm. So you bring 
up Sarah Emtage. Let's give Ron Chase another hand. It's called Making Conversation. In the beginning was the word, and he spoke to the darkness and turned it to light. He stretched out our lungs and crafted our throats. He detailed our tongues and our lips. He breathed in our nostrils the breath of his life so that we in return could breathe meaning and sound, to sink into ears, to strike on the drums, to be heard and to bear a spark of the life that he gave. We breathed in and broke up the silence of earth. We took air and spoke in the birth of our mirth, reflecting and echoing, untying thoughts, dancing, advancing, and dueling thoughts. The word made these wonders, and he said, it is good. It is a good thing to listen and to be understood. As we bring up Alan Watt, let's give Sarah Emptage another hand. I was privileged enough to be the, um, the last person to see my father before he passed away, and this is for him. I'm standing here, remembering my father, remembering yesterday towards the evening when an explosion of light came from the sky and his son tried, the sun tried in vain to shine through threatening rain clouds, shafts of light were beaming down, searchlights over darkening fields. It was one of those moments when we knew that we had just caught a glimpse of the Creator's glory, knew that the ground beneath our feet was holy ground, and I for one couldn't help thinking that if we listened hard enough, somewhere, somewhere up above, we'd hear angels singing. A few years later, Mere hours before he left his pain-wracked body to take his first faltering steps into eternity, I slipped a small sprig of purple heather into his pajama pocket. I told him I loved him and wished him bon voyage. As we bring up uh, Gretchen Huntley, let's give Alan Watt another hand. Will I be free if the pain that I feel right now will drowning be the key? The water looks so inviting. Will there be peace beneath the sea? Will I find comfort if I continue when the water encompasses me? My legs are moving on their own. It's as if I've lost control. I cannot think or reason. I feel my body has left my soul. My heart still beats, but I don't care. God is cruel and life isn't fair. I look again at the waves. Yes, they are calling me. Keep walking, don't look back. There's nothing left to see. I have heard it said that drowning is a beautiful way to go. Not like the way he left me. Once again, I feel the pain grow. My body is starting to numb. The water is very cold. Just a few more steps to take. Move forward and I'll never grow old. He was old and sickly. He said he didn't care if he lived or died. It didn't matter that I was there. Another wave hits me. I can't feel my feet anymore. Just be patient, don't panic. You'll soon walk through death's door. I force myself to stand firm. In that moment, things become clear. The water sparkles like diamonds. 
oh, what am I doing here? I have so much to live for. I can't make the same mistake. I would be committing suicide with every step I take. Each breath is one more moment. I mustn't throw it all away. Life is a beautiful gift. I need to live it every day. Yes, there will be times when I will slip and fall, but I hope in that moment I will recall that the choice is mine and mine alone. I must make it carefully. Do I reach out for the diamonds or sink beneath the sea? I will live another day. I will take another breath. I will not give up on life. I will not welcome death. As we bring up Carmen Nichifano, well, let's give uh, Bridget Huntley another round. Sorry about that, Bridget. And you just heard uh, readings by Ron MT, uh, Ron Chase jumping the jumping across the line here. Ron Chase, Sarah Emtage, Alan Watt, and Gretchen Huntley in the uh, first round of the February 4th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series and held from the Elm Cafe. Up next in it, uh, we're going to move in, into, actually happened the following day, February 5th, uh, was a Creative Writing at Queen's Reading, and in there, I should say, uh, Creative Writing at Queen's Reading and Discussion Series, uh, and as introduced that afternoon by Professor of Creative Writing at Queen's and MC of the event, Carolyn Smart, you're going to hear first her introduction to and then the reading portion uh, of this event uh, featuring Leslie Ballou. Uh, and uh, in the, it's a long enough it was a long enough event that it won't fit in this first hour, so this will take us a, a few minutes before the uh, end of the first hour, and I will uh, go through. Uh, there are some things I do need to talk about and air in this hour, so I will do that at that time. And then in the f at, right after the top of the f second hour, I will get into uh, it was a wonderful discussion uh, that followed, and we're going to get into that after. But here again is the first part, uh, the reading portion of that event. And again, as introduced by Carolyn Smart, here is Leslie Bello. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the first reading of the winter term. Today, I am honored to be introducing Leslie Bello, who will be offering a reading from her work, followed by questions and to begin, we would like to acknowledge that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. When we perform a land acknowledgement, we make what is invisible visible. We add multiple perspectives and diverse voices into the conversation of how we interact with our world. This act of naming, of inviting something into language, is a principle of advocacy we can all engage with, primary to us as writers, readers, and literary people. Some of you may have attended the event hosted by writer-in-residence Canisia Lubrin last fall that featured writing and discussion by four outstanding authors, including our guest today. I'm so pleased that we'll have the opportunity to hear more of Leslie's work and to hear her speak of her influences and concerns. 
tell you a little bit about her personally. Leslie is an Anishinaabe writer, mother of five, educator and activist for the Ojibwe Nation of Ketagunsebe, Garden River First Nation, located outside of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. She is a PhD candidate in the Indigenous Studies Department at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, focusing on studying Indigenous feminine literature and narratives, and is currently a pre-doctoral fellow at Queen's. She's been on staff teaching Indigenous literature, creative writing, and theater at Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie, a PhD teaching and research assistant at Trent University in the Indigenous Studies Department in Oral History, as well as the history of indigenous dance theater. Leslie writes fiction, essays, and poetry, and is the author of The Color of Dried Bones, a collection of short fiction published by Kegadon's Press, Sweat, published by Your Scrivener Press, and the winner of the Pat Lather Award for the Poetry Collection, Indian Land, published by ARP. Of that book, it's been said, Indian Land is a rich and varied poetry collection. The poems are written from a female and indigenous point of view and incorporate Inishinaabemowin throughout. Time is cyclical in this collection, moving from present day back to first contact and forward again. Themes of sexuality, birth, memory, and longing are explored. Images of blood, plants, milkweed, yarrow, cattails, and petroglyphs recur, and touchstone issues in indigenous politics are addressed including Elijah Harper, murdered and missing indigenous women, forced sterilization, and Kanasatake. Please join me in welcoming Leslie Bell. students in my class are here, so it's nice to see that they showed up. So um, we went to, a, it was last Wednesday, I went to a poetry reading at the grad house, and uh, I know Holly, she was um, emceeing, we had such a good time, and I think some of the students were the first, first time that they've read up on stage before, so just want to say congratulations to them. And it was just nice to meet a community of writers here at Queen's. It was the first time that um, I've been around other people writing, so it was fun. I even meandered up on the stage myself, and um, it was, it was a lot of fun. So I'm going to repeat, I just want to let uh, my class know I'm going to repeat one of the poems that I read, so just don't get too bored with it. So I'm trying to read um, some new writing that I'm working on. Um, I'm just getting, um, this is my only poetry book, is Indian Land, so I'm, I'm working on another one right now. And it's, um, it's called Awensi, it means wild animal. And it's, um, so I'm trying to um, incorporate um, a lot of my thinking into that new book right now. So, but mostly I know that um, I'm going to be reading um, out of this book as well. And I didn't realize the class was actually a poetry class. I do have a fictional piece to read, but it's very short. So I hope that um, nobody minds. So should I just jump right into a reading and then we can talk afterwards? Okay, so I'll read um, the, um, the story first because, and then I can get more into the poetry. Now this is, it's an older story because I, uh, I started writing, I started writing fiction mainly. Um, or and plays, and then I was I was just always had this fear of writing poetry because I was so personal in my own poetry. I wasn't able to separate like the my exact thoughts or my personhood from that. So uh, to me, it was a terrifying thing to write or to to expo I felt exposed, I guess, when um, 
people read my poetry, and it was kind of a frightening feeling to me. So I kind of I put that on side, aside for years. And a lot of um, the poetry in Indian land, some of it's really old. I mean, I can, I can barely remember writing it. I think I've got a poem in there from, uh, you know, the early 90s, the mid-90s, because I just left them, I gathered them all together in a book, and I didn't want, um, and I chose the ones that I thought kind of collectively worked together, and I put them in there. So I'm going to, this one came out, it was, um, it, it came out, it was edited by Warren Cario. I know, Sam, you know who he is, and I'm not sure if you read this one, but it was um, one of the short fictional pieces that I worked on, and I really, I, I was just looking and I was thinking, what, you know, because I'm getting back to writing fiction again, I was just thinking, you know, which, which stories did I like that I wrote, because there's so much that I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking, you know? <laughs> you, you change the way you write over the years, it just, I know I, know I do, and I look back and I'm almost, um, I'm horrified sometimes by some of the things that I even thought years ago. I mean, I shouldn't be, but um, but this, I, I did like this piece because I was, um, for a time, I was looking for pieces that incorporated, you know, childbirth, and there there wasn't a lot, you know, when I started thinking about it. But then I started thinking about um, Anishinaabe childbirth and thinking because I, I mean, I've obviously gone through the process myself five times, and so I was, and then the two, the first two times I was in the hospital with the doctor, and it was just so sterile, and it was very impersonal and I was very upset afterwards actually so the next three um, with my three daughters I had a midwife and I had um, Anishinaabe women in with me at the same time as long as well as my family so it made me just start thinking about the process of childbirth and that's what I based the story on and it was during the time um, I, I probably wrote this about 10 I would say about 10 years ago but this is when I was um, you know st still going through my oldest daughter turns or my youngest my middle daughter turns 10 on Sunday so I was sort of in the middle of still thinking about um, the aspects of childbirth and whatnot so I'll start with that and can everybody hear me okay yeah okay <clears throat> this is called dodo scene and dodo scene the it in Ojibwe it basically means the umbilical cord it's um uh, it's not a literal literal translation, but it's like a it's um it's um a story translation of um, the umbilical cord in Ojibwe culture. Okay, <clears throat> and this isn't the beginning. It's sort of going. It's um an excerpt throughout. Mary's legs are starting to feel numb, restless. Pinpricks shoot through her back, and she is angry at her mother who is moving too slowly. A scream wells up to help these babies out to pull these babies out. Her mama's body beside her feels like a sudden weight, and the comfort is gone, and a desperation ensues. Yellow pain behind her eyes nails into her mama's hand. She cannot speak, she cannot speak. Shifting inside of her, and she cannot speak. Silence, slicing into her flesh, the scent of silence that is a browning burdock, the sound of it thick as the open underbelly of a fish, pressed with eggs. The women gather around a pot of boiling water, they speak in Ojibwe so that she cannot understand. They speak in Ojibwe so she doesn't hear them. Mary understands some of it under the weight of the power of the pressure filling her legs, her womb, her mind. Beat Kudan. She knows her auntie wants to cut her open. She understands the word because when the men pull the hanging noose towards them with the knives in their hands, they whisper, Boot Kudan. She knows they want to cut her open splay her open with their knives and release the baby from her womb. Leave her on the blankets to bleed herself into the next world. No, mama, no. Mary tries to push the babies out. She knows there are two of them because Esau, the medicine woman, said so. Niche, her log cabin is so hot, fire inching through your flesh, wafting calendula on the cusp of the air. 
Issa's eyes, the wrinkle of wisdom so secret in her gaze, a smell of north winds on her hands. Old hands on her belly, the fire of her hands, a dream of fur and flesh and long white fingers. Niche, her breath a mystery, inside of drumbeats, a history of lovers that Mary does not understand, a sweat of birth that Mary cannot name, a pain, a ripping of girl flesh, a sudden fusing of life into life into soul, a small red berry. It's in her palm, staining, staining of skins, a moon bath of bark on one night. The running of blood, the beginnings of the wonder, a sigh of woman, the birth of all women. Issa's eyes on her own, niche, two babies inside of her belly, small brown belly stretched out, red lines running like slashes, long white fingers. She leaves and Issa whispers in her ear remembers, Mary tries to push her babies out so the women don't have to cut her. She bears down, grunting, heaving, red raspberry tea pouring out of her mouth with the effort. Sweat pushing out of her pores, her hands finding her belly and pressing down on the enormous shifting bulges under her flesh. The women run towards her whispering, whispering, voices beat into each other, weaving one into the other until she tastes the blackness a relief in the fall towards that well, a silence that opens and swallows her head first, snaky, and the babies loosen in the falling. Everything blackens. His hands catch her easily. Inside the blackness, she, um, she hears the shift of water, a lapping that is carnal in its movement. The silence backs away, uneasy. She feels his hands so white feels the trails of veins beneath the flesh of his hands, feels the blue of his veins against her flesh. Naked, he reaches beneath her and pries her open machine-like. His breath is whiteness and dank with the scent of snake. A shifting inside of the water at her feet. There is water beneath her feet that pulls at her and she whimpers, shh, let the others sleep. His breath is old, watery, Cold feet and his blue veins burning her flesh. His watch scrapes her hips and her blood absorbed, absorbs itself into his pores. More blood and he fills himself up on it. Blood down her thighs and he laps it at hungry as her body rebels, tries to guard itself against his sperm, fighting its way deeper into her. Her body burns against their movements and she wills her eggs into hard, useless balls, not ready for production but they turn against her and they accept him, open to it. And she knows this and she falls against him, but he is gone and the water accepts her and she drinks it and drinks it, drowning in its foul odor and lets herself go against its pull. She's back, Mary, push, push my girl, push Mary. Mary pushes somehow and follows her mama's voice. The women are everywhere. Some hum against the sound of the drumbeat, but she pushes somehow following her mama's voice. The blackness is fading, and she can see the women everywhere in her cabin. The babies move downward toward the sound of her mama's and auntie's voices, and she pushes, pushes, bears down so hard the heat tearing her open. The teeth are red with blood. The expulsions out of her mouth are not long enough. Mary pushes, her hands clutching someone's flesh, dreaming of painlessness, remembering the beach and finding starfish. 
his hands a massive white starfish, fingernails so polished, blue veins cold, cold inside of her, a scream, an owl hoots, the women breathe. Mary feels fire opening her thighs, and head emerges and Mary can barely see the top of her baby's head. Black, thick hair, so much of it. Her mama smiles at her and Mary screams again. Blackness licks at her, but she does not want to see him again. She does not want him to see her, her babies. Her body wants to just push and push and push, but her auntie whispers, slow, Mary. Just a slow, gentle little push. Slow push, slow. She exhales and slickly the baby wriggles out where she can feel the fire recede and she can gulp in some air. The women are busy with the baby. A silence, a dripping of water, a rhythm of breaths exhaled. He cries a long, hearty, strong sound. Mary tries to bend closer, but she cannot watch for, a long, for, for long as a searing heat makes her bear down once more. Thick heat presses down on her, pulls out her breaths in quick pants, and she thinks of a deer's breath before it is shot. Little puffs of life into a cold morning. Dodo scene. Her auntie is busy cutting the cord. Mary lifts her head to watch and sees a long cord coming from between her legs and attached to the baby. Her auntie is cutting through it quickly, her fingers reddened and wrinkled, her lips pursed, her brow furrowed down. Auntie by the lamplight, black and gray hairs wound and wound around each other, braided over her shoulder. Auntie by the lamplight, her little breaths of puffs, her breaths, little puffs of life in a cold morning. Auntie's hands wrapped around the cord, whispering, dodo scene, dodo scene. Mary knows that later her auntie will save a piece of the cord and place it in a deerskin, deerskin pouch above the baby's cradle board. Auntie cuts through, and her baby boy is freed from her body completely, severed away from her for his own life, and he is placed on her chest as she continues to push, Mary push, Mary push, Mary push, Mary push. And her stomach steals itself upward like a fleshy mountain, heaving with spring and fear, red valleys trailing themselves downward, and she screams her pain into her mother's ear, and she wants her mama close. And she hears her mama's fear in her sweat. And she pulls her mother closer, feeling the little body on top of her so small, so weightless, so wriggling red, mouth hungry and hungry, so open and so hungry. She pushes and feels blackness lunging at her, wrapping her up, and another cry is heard. Another boy is being lifted by the women's hands, and Mary relaxes into the darkness, limbs exhausted, her heart a hummingbird, losing itself to motion. So that's just, that's a piece of the story. Um, so, um, now, I mean, I don't know who, if anybody's read this book, um, but I'm going to read something from uh, my new work, and then I'll, I'll finish on this, because I know in my class we're just looking at some poems in this book. And I apologize, my printer broke this morning, so I'm reading it from my phone. My children made a coloring book, and I don't know what buttons they've pressed in. My sons weren't there, they take care of technology in my house. So um, this poem is called Awensi, and like I said, that means wild animal. So I've been thinking, um, you know, a lot um, in this book, I, it was very, it was more like personalized sort of a confessional and book like this. The one I'm thinking of now, I'm just, I'm looking at um, like traditional 
like um, a traditional lives, and like I missed a lot of that growing up. I missed a lot of the traditionality until I was in my t- teenage years. I mean, we grew up t- doing powwows. I used to jingle dress. My mom's—I'm also half Swedish. My mom's um, from Sweden. She was born and raised in Sweden, but she was the first woman on the reserve. So I—I I didn't leave the reserve until I was 26 years old. So that—that's been my life. But I was thinking, um, growing up in the Christian church, I've been thinking a lot about uh, tradition. My dad was a very, very like very stern Christian. Um, until but that came from his years that he did 10 years at Spanish um, residential school. So it was when the time of OCA came and like a the different kind of resistance movement and he worked for the Canadian government at the same time. So he, he was happy with his life. So we grew up in the Christian church. I mean, my mom taught Sunday school. And then uh, we very rarely did we ever go to it. We actually not very rarely, we never went to a, a sweat lodge. We, you know, we did, but we did do ceremony because we were still had like we had a sense of community, and so we were always in ceremonies and powwows, except in terms of like a religious sense or religious. It was part of like an organ, a Christian organization. So when my dad went to Oka in 1990. He came back, he was a completely different person. He left there for the summer and he came back and then suddenly he was, well, he went straight into tradition. He, he revoked his ideas of uh, the Christian church. And, but to us, like, you know, I was 14 years old, 13, 14 years old at the time, it was very confusing because you grow up thinking one way, then suddenly you're, you're in another way. But it was, I'm very grateful for the fact that we did live both lives simultaneously so we were able to adjust accordingly. But I, and, and we're old enough to make our own decisions at that time. But then he, so that's what I was thinking, and you know, I, I was thinking about what he always said about these wild animals. We lived, you know, right on the river between the uh, Highway 17 and St. Mary's River. We had about 12 acres there on the reserve, and um, we just, we lived in the bush, like we played in the bush, that's what we did. My mother said, always beware of those wild animals out there. And so then my dad, afterwards, he, 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 every time he went out there and prayed and did ceremony, he'd always leave a plate beside his little orange plastic chair that he used to sit on outside of there. And we'd go and ask him, and he'd say, why? And he says, you have to give honor to the spirits that are here. And so we always took it as the wild, you know, like the wild animals, but they are actually like spirits, ancestral spirits and everything there. So I, I've been thinking more about the things that my dad said at the time that I didn't acknowledge. So now I'm, you know, you think, you, you look back in retrospect even decades later and you start acknowledging, like thinking about the way you thought when you were young and, and the way you didn't see things. And I think that's what um, a lot of this poetry is. So I'm looking at this poetry in a, a very different way than I've, I was um, writing this book. Okay, so it's called Awensi. She falls. It is all different once the world speaks. Bizan, Gedujibik, whisper outside, trails, crooked, followed. Footprints, the window edge where love sits. Bijanigu, can you hear me clearing my heart from you? That little Ojibwe mo, burrowed, so easy to crawl inside of, vacancy, a small mouth opening, every crevice swallowing. We tried to, are her hands loosening? We tried to bury her, our little hands so quick, so bored with each other, the long arm trees that knew our name. Caverns are ravenous, trying to turn the page of a book, that trail too dark, and nobody wants to open her story. Mouths skimming her drippings, a tongue as wide as the old trails. Her ear against the pulse of the sand, dug, dug, so new, and Debidawa, caving, grab my hand over the rock sounds. 
A grandmother holds the side of a tent open. Footprints, the imprint of a stone when you breathe. A wensie, your low pant. Growling, hips swallowing your sound when you strain to say my name. That wind, I still dream I hear you. Noondagwa, that sound. She splays, spine straightened, stories. Look what's in your hand. It's not holding me. The half moon rustles, a half whimper. Curling, underwater voices. Little bones are my pillow and memory is my blanket. I walked into your arms, Boyakatam. She hears the right things. My sisters laughing, their long mouths not knowing fear. Trees, faces, silence, burrowed, sewed into your walk that sang our stories for us. A Wenson, my daddy loved you. You ate each plate, you sat with him. A Wensi, we tried to eat each other's footprints. So that is that story. Well, story, I always call poetry a story, but it, it is a story at times. Thank you for the water, Terrible. Should I just continue? Continue reading out the poem. I just don't know the time. The time here, so just stop me when you want me to stop. Okay, this one's called uh, Amiko Wish, a Beaver House. We come up short somehow. The mothering, the splaying of time. Windows seem smaller now. They take up more space. Each year, there's an invisible carpenter that comes and eats and gnaws at the side of the frames like a beaver, urgently settling the water. Teeth bared, hungry for time, bloody jowls. That pant. Babies waiting, fading, floating face up on eBay, little face turned towards mummy, waiting the sharp taste of love and urgency. Chewing, chewing, so fast, and the glint of blood on gums, coloring the water, looking like old clay and eyes on the shoreline. Shoreline, oh and oh, your soft bed. Breaths, no sleep, and the world is silent, those breaths. No sound but the crickets. Preparation is a sister. Her space is wide. Tail so vast it makes wide, flapping sounds before morning. No one notices the way her teeth curve downward. Her body is a moon, widened, and she whispers to herself to not get tired, not get tired, not get tired. The push of her babies, the way she howled, the way they suckled, the way they finally sleep. They plate her face, streaming sleep is a punching bag. The act of homing creates a sound in her blood that never goes away. Me squee, misquee wee wee. Underwater, her voice tastes, digging, her paws so raw, the burying, the sand, the shawl around her. Undas. So I, that's the one I'm going to read from here. Then, I don't know, I'll just read something in here. I didn't choose anything in particular because I'm not sure what um, would be the best thing to read, but I'll just go ahead and pick a page. Um, this, one, this one is called Turtle Island. It's near the end, and it's not so long because some of my poems are endlessly long. It's <laughs> because I think that I wrote stories for so long that I don't know that, but like I just I have a hard time stopping because it just seems like because then when I, then I stop myself and like wow that's is that even can you even call that a poem? But then I, I look at Louise Half the Crooked Book and she calls that a long poem. It's way longer than mine, so <laughs> so I forgive myself. 
So here's a short one, it's called Turtle Island. My mother laid me down on Anishinaabe soil, her white-skinned baby that she forgot to pray for. She thought my skin would save me. She didn't pray for me like the others, my veins pulsing skin, all my cries, the bark cheeking my beginnings, while she looked eastward, her family tattooed against her heart. She gave me the soil, and my grandmother lifted me singing a song, but it never silenced the history weaving itself down my throat so heavy I tilted. Little streams, the body arching. A man and woman pulled secrets out of each other in February. When Ontario shut the doors of reasoning, he held her, and she looked the other way, her mother raising her death flag. And so I built kindness from sticks, <clears throat> looking for bears and hugs and eyes that are windowsills. And we picked the bugs from them and we sucked matchtips while we waited. Baptist uprising, we saw the skirt of Jesus. Open arms, she held us once, rocking, loud baby mouths hymning. Okay. I will read something else. Something not as long as this story. Um, nothing too provocative. <laughs> okay, I'll read this one. Yeah, I know. I guess sometimes I, I know there's some, a lot of men because I have a very feminine outlook to a lot of my poetry. A lot, but uh, but I, I'm not a woman, so <laughs> that's, the way, that's the way it goes. But this one is called um, Oki Dinan, Her Vulva Stolen. Um, you know, I, this one, it just reminded me of like um, forced sterilization of Indigenous women. There was a lot of women, they went in for, for medical care or, or like a dent, even dent, dental care and they came out and they, they were sterilized. They were never able to have children again in this lifetime and they didn't even know about it. Some of, some of them tried to get pregnant. They wanted to have babies. It's a natural inclination for some women to want to have children and they just didn't know for their whole life the reason why they weren't able to have a family. And so um, this is um, this is part like I wrote this in, re in in relation to that legacy. In watch, a shriveled mother, fallopian tubes as marrow reddened and spongy, eyes on the limbs of a baby kicking its legs, socks folded prettily. She eats and does all of those light things she's supposed to do. She rises, the morning a beacon, her skin wet with dream, her husband sleeping his long back breathing, the breaths of the old, slow and machine-like. But she loves him and he loves her, even though he never got his son. The yearning is over. The babies she sees playing under the trees are gone. The knitting needles sent to the Salvation Army for hands that have little heads to cover. Aquasasni notes, forced sterilizations, blood wider than the Great Lakes, our thighs sticky as we gather. An imaginary cry in our gut, breaths severed, wrapped in cloth, the soaking of our dresses. But no one cries for them. Misqui, misqui. Our tongues are bloated with unsaid thoughts, our bellies flat, starved, and stolen. She rubs her belly button sometimes, thinking of her attachment to her own mother, wondering of the severance the minute the doctor makes the cut, leaving her abandoned, carving her own path, her eyes like stone on the mother and child, 
his hands like white milkweed caught in the morning, tangled on the cord, struggling to escape. The glint of his glasses, a weapon, startling the baby into silence while the mother sleeps. Sometimes it is all stolen, our body parts bagged and garbaged while she sleeps the sleep of the silenced, splayed soft spirits shouldering her to wake and live, live, live. Her babies carried to the first mother's hands, wrapped and safe. The colonized drug sleeping, the piercing of her consciousness to steal her womb space, womb space to place the throbbing, baby hungered melting on his white bloody palm until it sleeps and he tosses it into an unknown field to die with the rotting autumn. Her groggy face being told she is okay, now wake, wake and hurry back. That night she sleeps, her ancestors cradling her, birthright beside Gizis, those stolen ones who she never knew. Dying without birthing, the ones meant for her, her eyes watching the way the night eats and swallows the sight of Nibe. Swim, she tells herself, swim. Just find the water. Nibe will clothe you. Nibe will wrap you up like the baby you are. Nibe has a voice like mother. Then put your body, let her hand in yours. Nibe, come find us. Cradle me here, cradle me here. Me squee on your hands. Me squee on your hands. Somehow she wakes, body turn, torn, her body emptied. Nibe, remember. And that is that one. Okay. I'll read something happier. <laughs> okay. It's just, yeah. Now my poems are very happy some, somehow, <laughs> for some reason. I think it was just, uh, I'll, I'll read this one. I read this one for poetry reading too, but it's, um, it's, it's about, um, you know, it's more, it's about love, basically. Desire. It's called Desire. So stirring the night wakes, the click of bone a twig inside a firelight, the salmon stilled and all small eyes to sleeping. Your body is a braid, limbs, fingers, pubic hair tucked away, wound tight, deeply rooted flesh, the loop and pull and coming together, a woman's hand, faithful. I wear nothing but a basket on my lap, sorting leaves, a long vein trailing the edge of green like an arrow piercing my woman, a wisp of nettle settling on my fingertips, brown hands that weave the dawn. Our fire is dying, embers laid flat, gasping. My tea grows cold, your stomach rises, a bread lifting, a slow yeast forming. Earlier, your sweat rose beads, her hands needling blue and red, threadling, bobbling color, earrings that glint when she dances, waving like flags for the feet that walk home clanging so close to her sound, her feet move quick, a voyage. Your first thrust a weight, petals bursting the nectar, suckle the moist, your sweat, I tongue it. Not recognizing your heat by the fire, transforming a shifting of pulse veins on my tongue. Your marrow seeping a weeping of bone on bone. I cradled you later like one of my babies, head on my breasts, the length of your hair a shadow that made me think of Delilah and how she knew about power and how to steal it. Instead, I rebraided your hair, my fingers wet, smoothing the ends our with our juices, our body song, your weight a chant against the blanket that held us, the tea scent that hovered its sage waters, birthing quivers and little songs 
that I hummed against your dreaming. Lightning and your body jumps. Leaf tips edge my thumb. I listen for a beat of rain. I see the curve of love in the corner, crouching there. A boundary line beside my shoes, muddy from my shoe marks. When I ran to you, your laughter waiting as sure as a baby crowning, a weight against my chest, your still lips stained with my opening, a woodpecker bristled with fine shavings, the falling in its descent like bristled rain. Stirring, the night wakes, and I wait here for morning, your waking. I insert my limbs into your braiding. My want is a kiln to seal us, so we never leave here again. Should I have one more or fitty? Um, I'll do another short one. Okay. I'll just read this one here. It's more like a prose poem. It's called Wabon, Our Bodies as Resistance. And it's pretty short. And then that this will be my last one. Okay. I have spent the words like currency, threw them out there, and now they sit in buried chambers, and I will let them. Once they are freed from my heart, they are like little birds or someone else's prisoners. At least I release the language and your hands try to catch the words, the fluttering symbols like falling snowdrops you caught them, melting over your skins like they were never there. Skins are hard to shed for some people. Some people wear the same skins for years over their shoulders, the weight like centuries over them, and I watch you do this. Your smile falters, but it falters as though not at all, just a slight drip of the fabric of your cheek. I think of Aeneas Nin and Henry Miller, of their subtle violence, of their outrightness, of their shrewd connections. I don't think of June, who must have felt the solitude of nights against the bare cheek of her arm, the long waiting, the easy sleeping of one who doesn't ingest the passion of the moment. I think of Aeneas's mouth and the words on her fingertips. Her mouth is redness like the ochre of my people's rocks. Her mouth is redness like a rage and I am forceful in my writing, pulling the words from my grandmother's same redness of a different hue from the opposite side of the world countless years later. Ochred silence, a sturgeon's slow drip, the dip of midnight's throat. Sometimes, basking and dreaming, filtering inside of a warm morning, there is silence. And I think of silence like a droplet, like a secular gift, like an armor against the rush of people, the gale of a long life song. You come, and I open. There's a parting of ancient seas when you come to me. There's an instilling of my grandmother's song somewhere. The bones of me are wakening. All marrow expands, and I have newness, a hummingbird suckling. A woman waking, limbs and face exposed to the sky. Your hands are a chiseler, quick and inside of the moment. Your scent is a cedar-brimmed sageness, a humming of flesh, brisk walkings toward me, and my gasping is like the sturgeon's river song. My gasping is an inhaling of the flesh. So much yarrow inside of you. Your body is our cattails pressed and pressing against my cheek. When I come to you, I already know you like I know the earth. Your body is rooted in the earth that birthed me. Your body is rooted in the trees that sway like a storm overhead, and I taste your earthen husk inside my throat, your body tensing like a thick rod from my lips, 
and I love you for a moment, and I want, and I want, and I want your possession, and I want you under my flesh this moment. You watch me, and I watch you back. And Aki moves. Somehow the earth responds. It harnesses me, a grip so primordial, it smells like the inside of the spirit when earthbound. A milkweed bursting open, its breath escaped into the morning air, and I watched the journey of sense, searching for a place to land. And so I swallow it, and the consuming is a tearing of pages, a historical laying out of flesh long forgotten. Connected, and the watchfulness is overwhelming. The bodies and the tongues and the singing is a moon song that is pulled from the pathways and underlie all breaths of the first dreamers, the pure song that hums our heartstrings. The watchfulness expands, and in our falling, you press your strong body into mine until we are together with the hum of the earth beat and we are pressing like morning presses against the night sky with the persistence of language, the persistence of a radiant dawn that resists the language of everything but your body and mine. Our bodies are our resistance. Wabon, we stay here. Wabon, bathing us slowly, her eyes finding our bodies, and as slow as creation, pulling herself over us so we can sleep. She's in junior kindergarten, she's four, she'll be five next week, but now I always see the end for some reason. <laughs> I'm enough of the mystery reader. And you just heard Leslie Below uh, in the uh, reading portion of uh, the February 5th Creative Writing at Queen's event held in Watson Hall at Queen's University. Uh, because I I sort of mentioned this at the top of the hour, but I didn't give a reason for it, uh, I prefer that events don't run actually through the top of the hour. Uh, I like to break it up uh, mostly because these are safe to a blog space and I'm not sure if something might get lost in that uh, switch. So uh, if, you know, if there was a sentence that was broken up through the hour, I'd prefer just to start uh, something from scratch again after the top of the hour. And as I had mentioned, this event was over an hour long, so it can't fit in a single hour. And that said, I guess, at the top of the hour, you'll hear the conversation portion. Uh, it was quite wonderful that afternoon uh, with Leslie. And uh, before we get there, though, I'll tell you what, I do need to do this this hour. So let me do that. I'll be right back. The Four Directions Aboriginal Student Centre, located at 146 Berry Street, offers resources and services for Aboriginal students at Queen's University. Among its many services, the centre offers a Three Sisters Feast Weekly on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m. at the centre, prepared by staff or a guest chef. The centre is open daily, Monday to Friday, and hosts events throughout the year. For more information, visit queensu.ca slash fdasc. listener-supported radio station, that means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become... 
uh, human, you know, that's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Folk Everything, every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well, www.cfrc.ca. I do want to take some time to share some information about some calls for submissions that are coming up and also some upcoming events so uh you know what before i get into that though i'm going to do what i usually do is uh want to do this ahead of time and that way i can just go straight from these calls and events uh, straight into the top of the hour when it turns five o'clock how's that I want to thank you for tuning in to the first hour today, even though it's not quite done and we're getting fairly close. And I hope you can stay tuned for the second and catch the second portion of that uh, uh, Creative Writing at Queen's event uh, that happened only just a little over a week ago. And you're also going to hear a few more readings, three more readings from uh, the monthly open mic at the very end of the show. Uh, so I hope you can stay tuned for that. I do want to say, too, that uh, just my usual hourly mention that each, uh, at the end of the hour, that each w- week, uh, each hour of this show is uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. And uh, you can find it at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Uh, Those uh, will remain there for four years, so if you can't catch them right away, you've got some time. How's that? And uh, let's go ahead and go into some some of it. Let's do calls for submissions first and get those, and then I'm going to have a bit of time, I believe, too, at the end of the second hour. And uh, whatever events I don't get through, I will try to catch us up then, at least, and kind of get us up to speed uh, but as I'm getting my sheets around here, I do want to thank you again for tuning in to the first hour. Okay, here we go. Uh, one is coming up fairly quickly. In fact, the two that I'm going to mention are, in fact, I think I'm going to mention three, are all coming up quite soon. Uh, the, yep. 
Uh, the first one is uh, Freelit Magazine. Uh, they were established in November of 2014, are now a quarterly magazine, uh, so they publish uh, February, May, August, and November, and they are seeking uh, poetry, short stories, essays, other prose, photography, and visual art. Each issue is thematic, and uh, they do encourage, though, a loose interpretation of their theme. And the theme for the February issue is fantasy. Uh, you can find uh, submission guidelines on their website, and I believe past editions there as well, www.freelitmagazine.com. Uh, that's, yeah, I think I'm, I don't, if I didn't mention the date, it is coming up very quickly now. February 19th. And uh, call for submissions for Ultraviolet Magazine. Uh, they just, uh, they have been just sort of an open call until about a couple of weeks ago, but they have set their deadline now for Sunday, February 23rd. So just only about nine days left on this one. They are a 23 year old magazine devoted to the creative arts, prose, poetry, art, photography, graphics, music. They say, you name it, we want it. They say they are a student club based out of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and love promoting creativity both on and based out of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And it says we love to we love promoting both on and off campus. So if you feel you're writing, they say if you feel your writing or artwork pushes boundaries, limits, then please submit to Ultraviolet Light Magazine and show us what you've got. They've got a Facebook page. I would suggest going there. And uh, then they've also got a submission, uh, direct submission link on there. So uh, I'm not going to try to repeat a bunch of numbers. And uh, some of them are uppercase, some of them are lowercase. But they, it's very clear on there, and you just need to click on the link. The other one I want to mention, because it is also coming up very quickly, uh, February 25th, for a call deadline. Uh, this is the RBC Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers. What is different this year is they are offering two awards. Usually it's they alternate. Uh, one year is poetry, one the next year is fiction, uh, short fiction, and it goes back and forth. This year they're actually offering uh, a prize for both poetry so one for poetry and one for short fiction uh they uh they have been uh, i don't know when they first started they've been around for a number of years and this is one of probably uh in fact, what it says is the Bronwyn Wallace Award has uh, a proven track record of boosting the careers of young authors. So if you're out there and you are young and you meet the criteria I'm going to go through here in a second, uh, I'd encourage you to submit. Uh, it says with uh, uh, RBC's generous support, there will be one $10,000 winner for poetry and one $10,000 winner for short fiction. Uh, it says three finalists in each genre will receive $2,500, a trip to Toronto to attend the award ceremony in May, and a mentorship opportunity. It says both young, uh, I, they're, just says their guidelines are found in their link, and I'll give you that in a second. It says to be eligible, a writer must be a Canadian citizen or permanent resident under the age of 35 as of February 25th, 2020. Previously published in independently edited literary magazine or anthology, 
but unpublished in book form and without a book contract. Call deadline again is midnight, uh, February 25th. I would suggest going to their Facebook page. It has all the links. If you want to go to the website, www.writerstrust.com slash award slash RBC Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers. But if you get some of that in there, you'll be close enough. I'm sure it will pull the page up for you. So those are the the most pressing, I guess, submissions I have. There are some later, and maybe when we have more time other weeks, and also as it gets closer to them, I will begin to mention them as well. But that kind of gets us up to speed with submissions, and it just turned 5 o'clock 16 seconds ago. So tell you what, welcome back now into the second hour. It is 5 o'clock at 5 yet in a bit. And you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. And we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. Now, in in this second hour, it's kind of reverse of the first, but uh, we're going to go straight into... uh, the creative writing at Queen's event. And uh, as we continue with it, you're going to hear the conversation portion of that event with Leslie Bellow. Uh, following that, again, from the February 4th, open uh, And the Journey Continues monthly open mic in that reading series. You'll hear readings by Carmen Nichiforo, Ann Graham, and Allison Chisholm. Again, the usual first-of-the-hour announcement. Occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but all is played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Okay. Uh, Up first, as we continue with the February 5th, again, Creative Writing at Queen's Readings and Discussion Series. Uh, where she, uh, in which she was introduced by Professor of Creative Writing at Queen's Carolyn Smart. Here is the second and the conversation part of the event uh, featuring uh, Leslie Bellow. And we're going to begin immediately where we broke off in the first hour. So here we go. So... Uh First of all, Leslie, I just want to say thank you so much for your for your incredibly rich language, for your courage and your openness. And um, I, I really wonder whether there's anything you don't write about. Do you ever censor yourself in a way, or do you not? Well, I probably don't write about a lot of things, but no, I, I don't like to censor myself. But because, I don't, I don't know, I mean, I probably do without noticing it, you know, just out of being, you know, being a lady or, or just trying to not to offend some, someone, like, maybe that in the back of my mind, but um, today, I mean, with, with a lot of these poems, because I wrote them I, without expecting anyone to really read them, I didn't really expect to put, the, put this out into a public atmosphere at all, but um, I, I don't like, no, I don't, I don't think that anything should be censored at all. I think if it's a if it's a lived experience and it's um, it could help other people or someone else could relate to it or someone else could even understand that kind of language or experience, mm-hmm. I think it could be very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I try not to, anyways. If I do, it's very it's it's done subconsciously. Yeah. yeah. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your process? How do you go about creating your work? Well, I mean, it just changes all the time, depending. Um, when, before I had children, I, I, I would usually write, you know, first thing in the morning, or, or all the time, as soon as I wanted to, but I'd, I would carry a journal around with me, just these notes or these dreams, you know, because I believe in dream writing a lot, too, and I believe in, like, the power, in the power of dreaming. You know, uh, but Norval Morris who said like the house invention. I'm not sure if you did that, but I, I I believe that you know we're we have a very um we're very close to the spirit when we dream. So yeah, even still, like I would I'll jot down things about like, during my sleep or not during my sleep. If I could do that, that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, well, well, I wake up because I wake up often in the night, so I haven't. Um, but my process, I mean, it, it's changed. And then when I when I had children, I wrote my book Sweat. And I, was, I had two children. I was breastfeeding two babies at the same time. They're they're only a year apart. My two daughters, um, my two oldest daughters, and um, they I, I would have one of those breastfeeding pillows. Honestly, they breastfeed, and I just type over their heads like this. <laughs> so time I, to me, it was just finding it was it was just finding like the, finding the time because the two one boy was in school, and then the the one other boy could be you know beside me playing with his, his train set, the girls would be here, and so I, I tried to write while I had time or when I wasn't completely exhausted. Now I have more time. You know, they're all in school, and um, my son's turns, he's 18 now, he's, a, he's an adult, and my other son is, um, he'll be 16, so, I mean, I find that my time is, um, so now I just write um, whenever I, you know, I alternate between well the dissertation I'm trying to finish, so that's kind of consumed my mind the last couple of years. But usually to me, it's it's it's, it's probably about um, at night I get the kids to bed, and then I have that that strange silence in the house, and I and I just feel like that that's when I can find some peace. I'll just sit there and you know have a cup of tea or and just think and get my ideas down. Then used to be in the morning. Now I can't write in the morning. I'm just too tired. <laughs> too tired in the morning. And mornings around my house, it's quite. Quite haywire, but night, nighttime. You know, anytime after ten, like ten till probably two a.m. Yeah, that's my process, and I just think about, um, I think about the stories that other people are telling right now. You know, um, I, I'm talking to a lot of people who are new writers for the first time. You know, I have a friend named John, and his daughter's one of the missing and murdered Indigenous women, and she was pushed off a balcony in Toronto. And he's very open about his story, and he just recently wrote a book about that experience. And, you know, all the things he dealt with, with the Toronto Police, and he's coming in to be a guest speaker in our class, which will be very nice. But I'm thinking about some of the things he's saying, too, because he's um, talking about traditional elements and all the stories that he used to hear as a kid about the Sasquatch, and, you know, and, and the disbelief, and he's trying to wind them in as part of his own healing, because he had to go through a healing process for so long. And so his process is in terms of healing. I think, I think that mine right now is just listening to everybody else's stories. And, and I'm gaining a lot of inspiration from that, and it's not so much to do with my own life anymore. You know, I'm kind of moving away from my own thoughts. Sometimes I look at my poetry and I find it self-absorbed. It's so, but maybe it had to be at that time because I had to, I had to, to do that in order to for myself to go through a healing process. So, it's ever changing. You know, I don't know if that answered it properly. Oh, okay. Okay. Thanks. Does anyone else have any questions about anything? In particular, um, I just think it's so cool that you write from your dreams because, like, I know there's a few like different artists that do that. And like, do you do you like to find that like it's like a common theme? Like, like are your dreams like tapping into like a certain like are they like usually like your happier poems or are they like deeper? Like, I don't know. I just think that's so interesting that you write yeah. from your dreams. It's I don't know, but because I've had I've had this recurring dream. Honestly, it's been recurring for about I'll say 20, 25 years, right? 
I mean, I just turned 44 last week. So, I mean, I would say it was before I turned 20, I had this dream of this entire different life. It's like, I know menus. I know a meandering road going into this. And I tell everybody about it. Cause like, it, was, it at first, it was just like, what is this dream? Like, where is this place, you know? And the only person, I, and there's a zoo. I remember, like, the placement of monkeys on the trees coming. Everything. It's almost like living an entirely different life. And I think I've had this dream probably about, um, I'd say about 40 times. And I'm always wondering, what is the significance of this place? You know, I know the waitress's name. Like, it's so strange, you know. So, like thinking about that, I started thinking, like, you know, is there? Um, and then, and then other dreams. Like, oftentimes, if I dream about my family, it's always in my childhood home. It doesn't exist anymore. But my father's there, and this even like probably about three times a week, I always dream about my family. Like my father's in my dreams, talking to me. So I find that significant because I find that. Um, you know, the, the connection's still there. I mean, the spirit, uh, to me, it's, it's completely alive. Even in this room, I really believe in that. And, and so I try to be, um, I try to, like, you know, if there's some sort of message that's, that's coming towards, I believe that maybe it's important that other people have, have unthing, unsaid things left to say. You know, and maybe, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I'm, I'm channeling. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying that it's very important to not disregard dreams. Um, a lot of important messages can come through dreams or images or even just stories or even just um, peace or even if it's it's a frivolous dream like there's a lot of important um, elements in, a, in the dream world that I think may speak directly to us you know so I try to incorporate that as much as I can yeah. Thank how do you prioritize creative work when you have academic work to do or like real life? That's more like I find um, the creative work, it's, it's more like the like, it's more fun for me to do. And it's more about relaxing, sort of like going to a yoga class. And it's, it, it really makes me happy. You know, and when I'm done it and when, when, I'm, when I'm writing, I'm, I, that's, that's, that's my happy spot in the world. You know, it's like, you know, they say that's that runner's high. To me, it's like that writer's high. I, I don't know. That's the time off. Yeah, I don't know. It's when I feel stressed out, I know that I should write. Because, um, you know, and, and then after I'm done writing, I feel very relieved, like, uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And I feel, even if it's something I would never want to publish, but at least, like, you know, it's like journaling in a way. You know, some people find journaling extremely healthy and... Um, I used to do that. Now I just I, I just write. I just write it down, and it's sort of it's a, sort of a release to me, you know. But so it, compared, and, and meanwhile, my schoolwork it's not like that. <laughs> it's uh, you know, not at all. I mean, it's I, I have to be very focused on what I'm doing. But there's there's a lot to do, and I find that sometimes I get stressed out, you know. So, but writing doesn't ever make me feel stressed out. But it's very both are very important to me at the same time, because I find that. Um, Indigenous um, studies, it's necessary and it has to be out there, you know, for, for everybody to, um, for our future generations, especially. Right? Um, I think it's really fascinating your practice of um, dream writing as a person who has a literal notebook beside their bed and has never used it. It's, I just got uh, very enthralled in the idea of like your work speaking of a place that we occupy for a long period of time that reality seems to try to eschew very quickly when we wake up. And you being an academic and like publishing literature, taking care of a family, or um, like living with your family, it seems as if, well, not that you'd expect to like, have a lot of distractions, but I think it's just a really interesting practice. Yeah. 
It is, and it's very quiet when you dream, you know? And then sometimes, you know, when you think, Caroline, you asked me, like, when do you, you know, that even when it's quiet, like, I, st I still need noise. I, I, I think quiet, I used to just need silence all the time, but now the quiet kind of it scares me a little bit, you know, because I haven't heard it in so long that I just need something, even, even if it's just some music or even the dog chewing on a bone. If it's quiet, I don't know, it kind of startles me. Even during my sleep, I need something now, even if it's just with white, white, white blank sounds, you know. Yeah, no, thank you. That's uh, good, great, great observation. As usual. Look at me now. I think you had a question. Oh, sorry. Um, how do you feel about editing a poem that you intend to uh, publish? Oh, I feel great about it because I, I write <laughs> I write so fast and I just write even and I sometimes I sometimes repeat myself too much. I use the same word throughout, so I have to and I don't even check like and spell check. It's just a mess. If somebody else read it, be so yeah. I, I have to. I mean, and I take um, I think it's really good to get really constructive criticism from other writers or, or teachers too. I know um, I, I I used to when I was really young. I used to just like read this and say, oh, I don't really, like, I used to feel offended, like, I used to feel really hurt and go cry in the bedroom. I'm just a terrible writer, but now I just feel, you know what, that's so valid. And you know, they're the readers, and the readership is, is, is even more important than the person writing, because, you know, why, what are you, you're not writing for yourself, you're writing for somebody to take something away from your work. So it should be edited, and you should get. Um, I, I think you should, it's really good to get different opinions of, you know, colleagues or different writers because what they're they're seeing something that you might miss because of you're writing from your own perspective or your own knowledge system, right? So I always I have to edit my work because yes, it's in a state of uh, chaos when I'm done <laughs> when I'm done writing it. You know, I wouldn't want anyone to read it like that for the first time. How long does it usually take? Like, how do you know when you're satisfied with, like, you're done editing? Oh, I never, you know, I don't know. I never really am satisfied. <laughs> I'm like, so as good as it, this is as good as it's going to get. You know, this is as good as it's going to get. And you know, because you can just, you, some people. I, I heard of this woman, the story of this woman. She she wrote a book, and then she edited, it, and it took. She wrote it in say a year. And then she spent, I think it was 13 years editing it, and, and she just couldn't be satisfied with this piece of work because it just wasn't perfect and it kept changing. And the, the many, many more years she had it, she had to go back and change things for, you know, in terms of keeping up with current events. But I, I don't know. I think, you know, there's a certain point where you have to let it go because, you know, maybe, you know, because I, I'm never truly like happy. But I think, you know what? This is th these are my intentions there. The story I want to tell is in there, and it sounds pretty good, harmonious to my ear, so if no one else likes it, they can scrap it for me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. Do you think about, like, the purpose of writing, when you're writing? Oh, yeah. yeah. I do. You know, when I wrote about, um, say, um, the Meech Lake Accorder, Elijah Harper, you know, I, I was thinking during, it was during that time, like, it just made such a, such a change, like, it changed the political spectrum of, of of Canada itself, and same with Oka. They changed everything. It changed the way that people, um, Indigenous people, or especially the Mohawk Nation, but it brought together, instead of us being separate, separate tribal nations, it brought us together as a whole in a very relevant way. So when I write that, I, I want that to be deeply acknowledged, you know? And then uh, even the purpose, like, uh, you know, about childbirth, but I, I'm thinking more like, do you mean like more in terms of like the political things I write or, 
or just anything? Just anything. I think so, because you wouldn't want to give, um, you wouldn't want to like, um, like hurt somebody by the way you're thinking and the purpose. Like I, I do mean something. I have, I have an intention, you know, when I write a poem. Usually, you know, I hope so. But yeah, I, I think that it's very valuable to have a purpose and an, an intention there because your people are going to read it and you have to consider the reader's feelings as well at the same time, or thoughts. I don't know, you have to be compassion, compassionate to, to others. And I don't know, I think that um, for Indigenous writing specifically, it's very political. You know, everything, like even if you're writing about love, there's a sense of politics that, that um, exists in there, and there has to be because um, they, the way that our feelings have changed because of the colonization, because of the, what's happened in politics. Like it's just deeply rooted. There isn't one without the other, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, uh, in terms of, I guess, along the same lines as having a purpose, um, do you find that you just have a bunch of topics floating around in your head, and then when you're sitting down at night, you can kind of choose one and write about it? Or how, how do you find that you get your topics? like? When do they come to you, and do you write this randomly when you're inspired, or do you have to have a really strong emotion for something in that moment to write about it? Yeah, I've got lots of weird things floating around my, <laughs> my head. So, yeah, no, but um, I don't know. You know what it, it is? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Like, I do jot things down, but it's the things that I forget that really bother me, because if you think, you know, when you just come up with that, that great idea, and I, that happened to me. I woke up and I didn't write it down. The baby was, because my daughter sleeps beside me every, every morning I wake up and there's three girls and a dog in my bed and I go to sleep alone at night. <laughs> so, um, but um, yeah, it's, um, I, I, when I sit down, I'm just trying to think how that happens. Sometimes I don't even have it. If, even if I have no thoughts, I just start writing, you know, something. And it, it just kind of, it comes. And so I always smudge first, you know? If I can't think, like just smudge, open, get all, because there's so many emotions in my house and so many feelings and, you know what I mean? So the kids quabbling, it's good just to clear the space. And sometimes, like, suddenly it's just, it comes out that way. And, but I, I do, I just jot ideas and the thing that stands out to me, or if something even happens that day, I, it's, um, yeah. Or, or something else, to me right now, it's talking to other people about their story, so something else that stands out from what they said that I can relate to in a way, that's how. And then I, I just write it down and I think about it for a while. I don't know if I just start writing right away. I like to think, you know, through the day, think a little bit and then, you know, see what happens by the end of the day. Yeah. I don't know. Is that good to get real? Okay. <laughs> What has been your greatest challenge or obstacle being a female Anishinaabe writer? Well, I think um, you know when I first started writing, it was it's it's uh, it's been a real male male atmosphere at first. I mean, we had Maria in 1973, like Maria Campbell, Lee Miracle, we had Beatrice Cullerton Moyes, you know, we had all those people, Lenore Kishik Tobias, they came, they preceded us, but we didn't know about them because we were never taught them in school. I went through English class and I didn't hear of one indigenous, never mind male writer, occasionally we'd hear of, um, uh, when I was in university, I'd occasionally hear of Thompson Highway, you know, or, or somebody who's very, uh, who, who's very famous, Armand, you know, we hear these couple names, but I've never once heard about an indigenous female writer. I didn't have anyone to be, to um, look up to. And so I will, but, and that's high school and when I went to university, 
Um, I, I took English. There was no native literature classes at the time, or indigenous studies, or indigenous literature classes. So I didn't have anyone that I knew preceded me. I had then finally the you know the internet came out. Like I was went to I started a university in 1997. I did my started my undergrad in 1997, and um, I was 20th time and 21. And um, I didn't know that you could, you were able to write as an Indigenous woman in Canada. I didn't know that that was an, even an acceptable practice. I didn't write about my culture. It wasn't anything that I even considered writing about. I wrote about, um, I started writing about horror stories, you know, or uh, plays. I was very interested in writing, like, you know, themed plays during my elementary school years. But it wasn't, it wasn't until um, I, I had this professor, his name was Dr. Carl Jurgens, and he's just like, you're from Garden River. He said, "Don't you ever write?" And I said, no, "Like, what, what? What can I write about up there? There's nothing to see, really. There's, you know, a couple of trees, and you know, I didn't think that there was really anything to, to write about." And he said, "Read these couple, read these couple books." And he gave me um, Kateri Ekwensi Dam. He gave me um, her, one of her um, um, her her essays because she used to be a student for him. And he said, "Just read what she wrote in, inside of this essay." And I was just, I was really blown away. I'm thinking, okay. And then he just said, and I was actually failing English class, failing creative writing class, um, because I was so focused on the theater. At that time, I was in a play. I had this lead role in the play. I'm just like, I'm going to be an actress. And so I ignored all my other classes. And, and I dropped out of high school. I, I dropped out of high school. And I, you know, and then I, my mom forced me to go back to university. She, and, I, and I said, I, don't want, I, I just want to travel a bit. I want to you know, go to New York City. And um, so she said, um, and, and my dad passed recently. He was just, uh, he was very sick. And my mom was very getting stressed out at home. So she said, I'll go back with you if you so she went back as a senior citizen and I went back with her and then I started and then once I got into and then once I um, wrote, started writing with my dad's um, residential school he used to take dialysis he used to be on a dialysis so every time he was in dialysis I'd go sit beside him when he was on the machine and he'd tell me uh, I, I gave at first I started just interviewing him about his residential school um, you know his, his history of that, so I used that as my creative writing assignment. And he, it was I handed it in as an inter literal interview, and he said, "Change this into a story, and then change this into a poem." And then by the end of that, when when I started reading, learning that there are other Indigenous women who wrote, it just opened up in a whole new world. It actually did. It just it was like a, a light went off, saying, you know, because I always thought like it was a very I found writing very isolated. I didn't even know there was writing groups at that time, so I found it very difficult. And in our reserve, it's very hockey-centered, which, you know, I know you love hockey up there. Yeah, me, and my birthday was on Wayne Gretzky's birthday. So my dad would, <laughs> my dad would wait in the morning, happy birthday, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> and then later on that day, he'd kind of mumble, oh, happy birthday, Wayne Gretzky. You know? So we didn't have, like, we didn't have any kind of acknowledgement towards writing or the arts on our reserve. or um, So I found it difficult. And once I went to do my master's, that's when I think it turned around and I started writing from my perspective. But in the perspective, it's always been there. It's just I didn't know how to access it, you know? So, yeah, you're welcome. Is that, I don't know what the time's looking like. You were mentioning um, that particular professor. Who are some other mentors that you've had throughout your well, life? Um, when I went to do, I went to University of Windsor. I was a, um, um, I had my little son Nicholas. He went to daycare, and I met. Um, he wasn't. Carl Jurgens actually ended up coming there after I was there for a year. But I met someone whose name was um, Dr. Bernie Harder. 
apparently he was friends with my dad when I was a kid. He's like, I know that name, that, that, that Bellow name, you know? And he's like, do you know Wallace Bell? I'm like, that's my dad. And he's like, I can't even believe it. So he ended up coming from um, uh, Liebert, right outside of Echo Bay, right beside our reserve. And then he was, um, he was just really interesting. And, and he wrote, um, he was doing um, a book about, uh, a whole course about indigenous erotica. And I was like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> you know, and then he was like, and then he went on, it was, and then, but that's the first time, and I was like, wow, and it was really interesting, he did uh, Without Reservation, it was an entire book, and there were so many writers that I didn't even, I've never heard about at that time, so he was, uh, and then we'd go to his office, and he'd just sit, and he was, an, he was an older man, he's long retired now, but uh, he was just very kind, and very, um, uh, very, um, you know, he didn't. Um, he was very good with my writing. He was like, "You can write," you know. And he was just pushing. He, he liked to push, see, so, like push me a little bit further because I was so hesitant. I was very shy, you know, very unsure of myself, insecure. And um, I, especially with my writing, I wouldn't, wouldn't dare read it in front of people. Just, you know, felt very, you know, uh, social anxiety, whatever it was. But um, he, he was a very, um, very strong influence. And then um, another. Um, Another one, Susan Holbrook, she was a creative writing teacher there, and, and Diane Brandt as well. You know, um, they were two women that um, they didn't, um, they let me write the way that I wanted to write. They didn't, they, they didn't let me censor me, like there was no idea of censorship there. Mm -hmm. And um, they encouraged me to, you know, step out and begin to read in front of other people, which, which took me a long time to do. I didn't mind being on the stage because you're a different character, it doesn't matter. And they have a spotlight, you can't see anybody's faces out the, on the crowd, you know. I like to be on stage, but I would never read anything that I wrote myself, just out of, you know, fear of um, not being good enough, you know, or somebody won't like my work. But, Today it doesn't matter if people don't like your work as long as you're satisfied with your work and you're um, everybody's not ever going to like you. Not everybody's going to like what you write anyway, so that's perfectly fine, you know. Yeah. Do you mean personal influences or do you mean literary? No, I mean just anything really. I mean literary mostly, but I was just thinking, who else has really been important in your in your life? Um, I I I, I um, talked a lot with Marilyn Dumont, you know, when I was. Um, growing up and she wrote, uh, and, and she was really open with um, talking to me about writing over the, in, through email, mm -hmm. and uh, Kateri Dam always has, has been um, there, and she's just from, she's really close to me, Kate Croker, and um, it, when I went to go my, do my PhD, I was, got really close with Leanne Simpson and Christine C, and they're more of an activist, um, um, you know, which I which I really enjoyed. I really um, enjoyed that because it's just in my DNA. Because that's what my dad did. He used to take us for like this is where I put dynamite under this track, or that, you know what I mean. But like and he was he was very open about it, like, and so it was just always inside of me to appreciate that, not to not to blow things up, but appreciate you know just standing up politically for what you believe as as um, in the in a way that I'm able to, be, you know. You know, it did occur to me, sorry to interrupt you for one second, but some people here might not know what OCA is. Oh. Do you want to tell them what well, it is? Well, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a dispute. We're actually taking this up in, in our next class because it did affect literature in, in, a, in a huge way. You know, in 1990, there was a dispute with um, Quebecois and Kanishitaki about a golf course. It was a nine-hole nine golf course, and they wanted to, it, to expand it to be an 18-hole golf course, but it was on sacred, it was on sacred land. These are burial grounds. These are lands, you know, where, where ancient bones are, are buried. So it's a huge problem, and it's not it's not their land. It, it belongs to the Mohawk Nation, and so um, there it started out, you know, where they set up a barricade. You're not coming into into 
into this is our land. You're not gonna, you're not allowed to come in here. And so the Quebec, um, the Quebec police, they didn't, didn't like that. So ultimately, it became a 90-day um, standoff, or I'm not sure of the exact day standoff, but people came from everywhere. I remember it started out as just the, the, the Mohawks banding together. There are people who came in from South Dakota, from the United States, from you know, from everywhere in the states, from from Gardner, from British Columbia. Ellen Gabriel, she was from coming in this way. She she and uh, um, Alanis. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Osaba Benoit. I forget. I can't. I forget her last name. But I read it. My dad was there with them. But she wrote. She wrote this movie. It would be. We're going to watch a clip from that in our next class. But it ended up um, being. And there was even. Um, it was so violent, and it was just. It was so. It was such a terrifying thing to happen. Like you'd watch the news, and I, my dad saved all the clippings. I got all the old clippings. He cut them out, and we have. I have them in a huge shoebox. But it was just terrifying. Some of these elders were getting roughed up by the. Uh, the Quebecois police, and, and I mean with bayonets, and uh, Winnie Cord Miller, she ended up being um, um, a water polio um, Olympic, gold Olympic winner. She got stabbed with a bayonet, you know, protecting her little sister there. And it, it's just so many horrible things happened, but the thing that I believe that really, uh, what good came out of it is it created a unification across this entire country and the United States that has never, ever been seen before. You know, except in times of immense war, because to, to us it was a time of war. You know, it was a time of extreme war. I mean, we were in Garden River. We were blocking off the highways, the railroad tracks. That's just that's what our entire reserve was doing. And that's when we started getting really, um, really um, the people in, in Sault Ste. Marie and Echo Bay. They just started very. They were really against us at that point. You know, because they couldn't get to work or they couldn't cross. Who traveling around? We didn't have the the, the highway. The we have a different highway going into Sault Ste. Marie now. We just had the Highway 17 running straight, and they couldn't get through because it was just it was standing up, you know, until you know understand what happened, and, and it created almost a war between like a non-indigenous and indigenous society, and and um, but it also created like a unification that that changed like the sphere of actual indigenous literature in Canada. It became stronger. There there became um, a more activist approach. It became like, you know um, like not uh, like it's not backing down. And it just, and it was right after, like, um, with Elijah Parker and, and the Beach Lake Accord. I don't know, maybe, um, I know the students that are here, I'm sorry, to, but for my next class, maybe even just have, have a question or two about, you know, like, what is OCAR, or how does that affect, like, how, you know, that could affect, you know, Indigenous writing or anything, because I know a lot of people might not know what residential schools are or OCA or, or any of those um, subjects, but it was a huge thing that happened in Canada. And it um, it changed um, the entire scope of um, how you know even how we see each other as nations and how um, how we we envisioned a new future for this country. You know. I think perhaps in regards specifically to um, like the giggle in the room that came when you said about uh, your father reminiscing about putting like like explosives underneath the railroad. That often the conflation of land and water protectors, as in the Oka crisis, is positioned as environmental terrorism. Yeah. So be it Greenpeace or be it the Wet'suwet'en Nation, it's always kind of dispelled under Canada being a rule of law. So I think in regards to like that, just the last little comment, um, especially for our class, I think it'd be important to like see a reflection of how we read or like react to something when we hear that. Like they, uncomfortable giggle in the room because yeah. you're not really uh, 
instantly, of course, like being able to unpack all that. That's true, you know? And even when I say it, like, you know, I, I, I'm, like, well, to me, it was just a normal, like, a normal day, you know, normal afternoon, you know, just a normal comment that came from my father, but thinking about, like, thinking back, I can, and it didn't happen, but it was just, like, if, 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 if it would ever, like, he always used to say, if it would ever come down, the only way you could get the government is it has to go through the economy. Yeah, we what we have that we we like right through Highway 17. It runs the the, the railroad. That's a, that it run, that's the only spot, and there's so many reserves along that way. If, if they were all blocked, and my dad was huge. He's like, we have to block these railroads. We have to get rid of these railroads, you know. And to me, it was just that's just the way. Those are the things that he considered coming from um, where we were at the time and the things that were happening politically at the time, you know. And to him, that's something that was very important, but it didn't end up happening that way. Um, but it was a consideration that I think a lot of Indigenous people had at that time. Peacekeeper societies were popping up out of nowhere. You know, there was a whole bunch of like there was a whole bunch of different groups that it came from Oka, that came from that entire period. So, yeah. Who is your envisioned audience? Uh, who do you write for? Do you write for anybody? I know you have been working with Leanne Simpson, who uh, always points out that her primary audience is Indigenous people. So I was just wondering if there's anybody you have in mind when you're in your writing. No, I think, um, no, there really isn't. Um, I think it's important that, um, I mean, I, I don't just write for Indigenous people. That's, uh, I think non-Indigenous people can um, get just as much out of my writing as Indigenous people. And I don't, I don't think um, in many ways it's fair to do that because it's not, it's, it feels like you're supporting, hoarding literature, you know? Um, and I think I write for males just as much as females. I don't think there's anything wrong with men listening to, even young men who've never had children listening to a childbirth scenario. Otherwise, I would have asked them to leave the room if I thought there was something morally wrong with that. I don't think I don't think there's um I don't have a particular audience. I think anyone who can get any kind of truth, you know, or even find something of value in anything I write, or even find a question that might help, I think that's right. I don't. I've never really thought of a projected audience, no. I think it's um, anyone who, who cares to read it, it is welcome and open to it. Hopefully they can see some some sort of good in it, you know? Yeah. Um, going back to that idea of like social activism, especially being such a prevalent thing right now, and um, like with the Truth and Reconciliation Act, how can you see like people without Indigenous heritage partnering in that process of reconciliation. Like I know personally for me, I've tried at different times, not specifically like indigenous literature, but trying to write from a very different perspective than the one that I hold. And I always find that it comes off, um, like it just comes off wrong, whether it be like seemingly um, racist or sexist or, or whatever that is, but very like offensive and not supportive. And so how do you think people without that indigenous background can like participate in supporting um, those perspectives? That's a good question, you know, because that's so relevant to what's happening today. And like, it's really good that you acknowledge the fact that you feel that way, because that's um, something that um, we've talked about in class. And even I felt that way, you know? I felt, oh, I don't look um, native enough to go and speak and represent myself as an Anishinaabe person, even though I'm, I am Anishinaabe, you know what I mean? You, you feel like, I, I don't, it, it's almost like, a, and there's a lot of like maybe settler guilt or a, even a, a people who are Anishinaabe don't feel good writing with their own words because they feel like I'm just, I'm tokenizing myself to the point of where I 
have to write about this or in this centered way. So it's that un that discomfort, you know. And I think it it even precedes like what's happening with the with the Truth and Reconciliation Act. I think this is has been going ongoing for a long time. But I think now the that the attention's there, and that um, the attention's there even in the academy and universities. It's there in the workplace it, to be sensitive to the needs of other nations and other people and other genders. I think that it's now the conversation is, is open enough and that we can acknowledge how we feel personally about about speaking this way, right? So I think that you're on um, a good track that you feel, you say, I feel this way, I feel like I'm this way because you've been programmed to think that this is the way you feel, this is the way they feel, this is the way she feels, this is the way he feels, this is the way that group feels. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a programming that comes at us in social media, TVs, commercials, um, friends, you know, the bar, anywhere you go, it's, it's a program that we don't even know. So I think it's good to even, to have that recognition that, you know what, um, I recognize this inside myself, and I think that's just, like, that's, that's the only step you can really take. I don't know, I think it's just uh, to be sensitive to um, your own needs and other people's needs, and really watch, like, if, if, you know, really be careful, I mean, be really, um, Compassionate with the way that that you are thinking, because we we've lived. So everyone's living a different life. You can never um, walk inside somebody else's life and be the expert, because that's what has happened to colonization. It's killed millions of people just by thinking that way. I can I know what this person's thinking, or I know yourself better than you do. You know that's that's the that's the that's how abusive relationships begin. I you know what I mean. That's overpowering. Um, someplace that you're not. So I think that people are being more sensitive today, not everybody, and I think that if um, they're not being more sensitive people, I think that at least that state of discomfort or acknowledgement of discomfort is very important. And actually it's a, it's a, it's means that um, there's, a, there's a slow waking to understanding. It doesn't have to be fast, nothing is fast. Things that happen too fast usually don't, fast don't last, right? So I mean, I think this acknowledgement the TRC it had to have happened. It was being written, you know, started being written a long time ago. But now the fact that it's being recognized inside of schools and inside of elementary schools too, you know, even in JK they uh, they have the signs up. The kids don't know what it is, but I think it's um I think that's going to happen. I think it's a, a, a normal reaction to. Um, to um, trying to think and think and write about spaces that aren't our own, right, or where we don't feel that they're our own. Yeah. Anybody else? Maybe we'll call a halt okay. to this. Thank Hold you so much, Leslie. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Five weeks from today, it's going to be in Watson 517 upstairs on the top floor. Ruth Bank and Sam Abong is reading from her first collection of short fiction. So look at the Creative Writing at Queen's Facebook page for more info. And you just heard Leslie Billow and the uh, concluding discussion portion of the February 5th, Creative Writing at Queen's Reading and Discussion Series. As I mentioned, initially introduced uh, by Professor of Creative Writing at Queen's, Carolyn Smart, and you heard there her also 
concluding remarks following uh, Leslie's both reading and then uh, how she led and directed conversation after. Tell you what, let's do this and I'll be right back. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Shirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7. Listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, and we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Uh, coming up next, uh, on uh, we're going to move back into, as you recall, we started the show with... Uh, Four readings from the February 4th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series held at the Elm Cafe. And in it, you heard four poets uh, again as we began the first hour. Uh, those were actually the first four readings that evening. And as well, we're just going to go ahead and move straight into the next three. So coming up uh, now, you're going to hear from that event... Readings by Karma Nichaforo and Graham and Allison Chisholm. This is called Snowdrifts. I used to find solace in snowdrifts, tumbling backwards, arms outstretched, into billowing clouds of crystals I sank, spiraling into a drowsy descent, until the world receded along with my ails, the stillness sprinkled with my quiet exhales, and the gale winds whispering across the bunch fields. 
I discovered surrender and thunder. Freedom enlightens uncontrived wanders. Frolicking to the vibrations of rage, I dissolved myself in the rain. My skin inviting icy needles of pain. While the world grew lushly greener and vibrant, the echo of water drops transcended my silence. And once I was still and full of her grace, I would rise from the arms of Mother Nature's embrace. Brimming with strength and the longer insipid, my terror has fled, leaving me languid and liquid. Anchored by strikes in the earth in eternal renewal, I am empowered by forces more potent than you. As we bring up Anne Graham, let's give uh, Carmen Itchafaro another round. before, but I'm hoping that there's a lot of new people and you haven't heard it, or you just happened to be absent that night when I read it, or you just didn't care and didn't listen. <laughs> so anyway, it's called Winter, Hope for Spring, question mark. I knew definitely it was winter. The torrid, the torpid clouds were full of unspent grief. As I walked, I felt saddened and relieved. And, under, and an un, unbelievable sense of loss, mourning. I walked with desultory steps towards Skeleton Park, my neighborhood space. An abandoned swing swung to and fro, as if to console itself and feel alive, waiting. Waiting for the first robin, perhaps, or a crocus to venture through the snow. Slapped sap to start coursing through surrounding trees, some sign of hope, marking the start of spring, anticipation. My downcast, weary soul prayed for rebirth, prayed for a lightening of it, a lightening of its sojourn. I also looked for signs, rainbow perhaps. But all I heard was the creaking of the snow, hibernation. The wind spoke as it rustled through the trees. Stand fast, deepen your roots, this soon will pass. It blew mounded snow from reaching branches, and I could see tiny swelling buds. Prediction. Chisholm, let's give Anne Graham another hand. Okay. <clears throat> this poem is called High, High Tea at the Hoshalaga Inn. One clear afternoon, we met for high tea in the formal, formal dining room of the Hoshalaga Inn. Civility stilled the house as we righted our collars, unfolded our napkins. Across from me, you set your spoon to saucer, and when you looked up, I watched the clouds in my cup stir into the dark wells of your eyes. The darkness became my sadness, my sadness the afternoon reprieve. Chairs scraped floors, Birds swept windows, 
tea settled into milk. As we bring up Matt Draymond's start, let's give uh, Allison Chisholm another hand. And you just heard readings by Carmen Nichiforo, Anne Graham, and Allison Chisholm. In the first round, again, of the February 4th, and the journey continues uh, monthly, or I should say, just say open mic reading in that monthly series is probably a better way to say that, and held in now at the Elm Cafe, has been for over two years, and hard to believe we are approaching our 11th year there in just a matter of a two or three months, so hard to believe. And uh, there are, though, a number of calls. That's the end of the readings for today. I know there seems like a lot of time left, but I still have some uh, messages, that I, the recorded messages that I need to air before the end of the show. And I also wanted to share some upcoming events. I did the calls earlier. Let's see uh, uh, how far down the list we can get through the events today. Uh, so I'm going to do that and allow myself a minute to thank you for tuning in uh, towards the end of it as well. So let's go ahead and just jump into it. Coming up uh, this week is a weekly. It's uh, actually outside of the month of August. Uh, they meet every Wednesday evening uh, to critique and support one another's writing. They It's all genres, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, memoir. It says they're all represented. Uh, the Limestone Writers Writing Group, and they meet from 7 p.m. Don't know if it's an hour. It might be a little bit more than that. Uh, could be more than that, but uh, uh, they do meet at 7 p.m. in room 239 of Stafford Library, and uh, they meet at a different time in the summer months, but uh, their next one will meet then Wednesday, February 19th, at uh, 7 p.m. If you're interested, or I'm sure you could just drop in, or if you want to contact somebody, uh, D-P-R-A-T-T, and it's David, so D-P-R-A-T-T, 1939 at hotmail.com. You've got a presentation uh, that's put on by the Kingston Front Neck Public Library, and uh, it's going to be two different, uh, the same event held at two different locations, this coming week. Uh, so uh, getting started in genealogy, uh, Nancy Cutway is a family history researcher, and she, she's there to share her expertise in, uh, says, two free and their identical presentations at uh, Kingston Frontenac Public Library. Uh, she will uh, give two talks. So uh, the first one is on Tuesday, February 18th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Central Branch of the Kingston Frontenac Public Library, which is located at 130 Johnson Street downtown. And then it will the same again. Uh, talk will be given on Friday, uh, February 21st, so just three days later, from 2 to 5 p.m. in the afternoon. And that one will be held at the Isabel Turner Branch which is out by the Cat Center at 935 Gardeners Road. Check out for more information on their website, www.kfpl.ca. 
There is also going to be a poetry writing workshop uh, that the Kingston Frontenac Public Library is putting on. Uh, going to feature Kingston Poet Laureate Jason Haro, uh, and he'll facilitate a writing workshop uh, tying uh, Renga poetry with Leonard Cohen's work. Uh, uh, it says Jason will offer a 15-person workshop on Renga, and uh, the workshop is open to those 14 years of age and older. It's going. It's free. Seating is limited, though, so uh, they're suggesting you register. Uh, it's going to be held Saturday, so a week from tomorrow, is that right? Yeah, February 22nd. What is today, anyway? Saturday, February 22nd, is that right? Must be a week from uh, tomorrow at uh, the central branch again of the Kingston Front Neck Public Library. So that's 130 Johnson Street. Again, www.kfpl.ca. You'll get all the information there at their website. I will mention, in case you don't know, Renga is, and just briefly, it's a genre of Japanese collaborative poetry written by different authors in conversation. It said centuries, I looked this up, centuries after it began, the opening stanza of Renga gave rise to the haiku, which might be a little more familiar to those of you who uh, uh, didn't know what Renga was. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what it was, so I had to look it up. Uh, the University, or, I'm sorry, Union Gallery will host a performance reading of a love letter to Audrey Lord uh, by Devin West. Uh, I would suggest, I'm running out of time here, so uh, please check. This is coming up next, no, it's coming up Wednesday, February 26th. The 26th, 26th at 6 p.m. Almost a tongue twister there. It's going to be held in in Union Gallery, which everybody should know is first floor of Stauffer Library, Queens, uh, Queens University, corner of Union and University. Uh, I guess it's actually closer to that other street, and I don't know what it is, but at least Stauffer Library is there, and then you'll find it. Uh, so do check out their website, uniongallery.queensu.ca, uh, and that will have more information about uh, the event as well. Queen's Poetry Slam is also coming up uh, that same evening, I believe, Wednesday. Yeah, losing my place here. Sorry, I've got too many pages in front of me. Yes, but it follows, I think it follows it, because uh, the Queen's Poetry Slam, uh, they meet the last Wednesday night of each month at uh, the Grad Club. Doors open at 7.30. Uh, the event itself doesn't start until 8, so it runs from 8 to 9.30. Uh, if you're interested in that, uh, please check out their Facebook uh, page. They've also got an event page with that date. So just check out Queen's Poetry Slam, and uh, it should uh, you should get there. Uh, there is, and you know what? I'm just going to have to stop there because I'm running out of time, but that does get us through next Friday anyway, and then I'll have more for you then. I do want to thank you for tuning in today. Again, uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM, located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday from 4 to 6, 
stream on live on, online as well, www.cfrc.ca. Again, this show, both hours, will be uploaded to my blog space shortly at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. We'll remain there for four years. Please do stay tuned for two hours of East Coast music with Rob Carnell and a show called Saltwater Music. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.